Just a short note before we begin, for some reason little gremlins got in and chewed up the audio file of this one, so you'll hear that my audio side is not as clear and as as amazing as it normally is. Huge apologies for that, and you know if you've been listening for a while that that's not our normal standard. It was just too good a conversation with Josh not to press ahead with this, so please bear with it, and at least his audio is beautiful and clear. Thanks so much for being here. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Doing good is about what happens for the personal community you're trying to do good in. It's not about whether you made an attempt. It's not about whether you even care. It's about did that person or did those people get where they want to be where they need to be? So many people spend their whole life searching for their reason for being. That elusive thing that you must do with your life. What you live for, your purpose. My guest today is one of those rare beings that actually found his calling quite young in life. Josh Reed Jones is an experienced social impact professional and founder of the Just Be Nice Project working to ensure those in need are supported until they are housed, employed, and have positive mental health outcomes. Josh works tirelessly to change the way people help people and to create extraordinary positive change in the world by helping people make ordinary positive change. Josh is real, he's raw, and he's extremely passionate about making real change. I've been following Josh's work for a while now and have been really looking forward to sitting down with this wonderful human. Josh Reed Jones, it is so exciting to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Happy uh, Tuesday. There are so many things we want to ask you, but let's kick in with a big question. If there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Why don't people get the help that they need when they need it for as long as they need it, regardless of how they come to need help, is the question that I wish people would spend more time considering. That is a meaty question. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Why is this something that you're so passionate about and tell me more? For me, it's what I often say is this sort of foundational question for how I have gone about building my life. And it's the problem I've tried to solve forever off the back of, I guess, observing that people have challenges and need a hand. We all do inevitably, but there are circumstances and people and places that are left behind. And so through no fault of your own, you can end up without the help that you need. And with so much goodwill in the world generally, and with the absolute abundance of resources everywhere in the planet again, for me, it's always sort of boggled my mind that we can ever just leave people languishing, leave people in harm's way, leave people without help. And I guess the question also speaks to the process of sometimes giving people a little bit of help, but not finishing the job and just kind of walking off and going, we're done here. And that leaving people still in harm's way as well, but with 
I suppose, a sense that, oh, well, we did something, so everything's all good. So it's it's about considering what complete help looks like, what good help looks like, how we manage everything, interrogating people's ideas about who deserves help and, and all that sort of thing. And I've been on that contemplation for 30 odd years. It's been a long time, but I think it's something that we don't put enough time and effort into considering deeply. And because of that, there are people that we could definitely help everywhere that don't get the help that they need. And for me, that's one of the great tragedies. Oh, it's fascinating. And there was an element when you first said it, though, that I went to why people don't get help themselves, like in terms of taking that responsibility as well mm-hmm. and asking for help, because that's a common thread I've seen as well through life that, you know, they're too shy or they're too embarrassed or they're ashamed that they don't actually ask for help either. That comes up a little bit too, and there are certain sections of certain communities where that's actually like a really dominant theme. It comes up a lot when I work with them, and I sort of go, well, where's the five-year-old in Aleppo supposed to go for help? Sometimes people can end up a little bit blinkered about what good help looks like and who needs help, and they go, oh, well, my friend in Brighton who should just talk to their friends about being a bit sad, why don't they just go and ask someone to have a chat with them or take them for a coffee? And yeah, okay, but a lot of things are taken care of in that person's existence. And then there's that question of, do they know the help exists and are they reaching out for that help? So there's the whole section of billions of people in the world that don't have anywhere to ask whatsoever. Mm. That just doesn't exist. So that's a challenge in itself. And it's the vast majority of people don't even have somewhere to go to ask. So in terms of what percentage of people are having this problem of not asking when help is there, they're in the minority already off the bat. But then when we think about, okay, why aren't people asking for help? Let's say you were someone who I thought you should ask for help. And so my advice to you is is about what you should do because that's the kind of environment we live in in this individualistic take responsibility. You're responsible for all your successes and all your failures kind of culture that we live in at the moment. And we're sort of moving in that way. So a lot of people say you need to reach out for help. What I would say is, what are the people around you doing that has prevented you from feeling the trust that you need to go and ask someone for help? And people tend to ask for help when they know that the person or place that they're asking for help can actually provide that help. And not everyone has the people around them who can deliver that help. So That's why I think it's really important that we focus on how do we build environments where people trust that the help is there and then that it actually happens as much as then encouraging people into taking the steps towards engaging with that help. Mm, It's really interesting. I guess it leads into the type of work that you do, the Just Be Nice project. And I want to kind of dig into how that came about, you know, the obviously vision you had for that business and the work that you've done and like it's amazing, you know, in terms of following you for a while and seeing all the work that you do in the space is incredible, gosh. Yeah, well, I guess essentially it, it is the outcome from addressing that question. And there's so much goodwill and there are so many resources, but there are so many people that need help. And so for me, it's been about why are people in need? Why do they get such poor quality of help? What are people's ideas around that? As in, what are we teaching people that's getting it so wrong? How can we miss the mark so often? And how can we leave so many people behind? And then how do we build something that makes sense, not just in a particular environment of an affluent country, but something that is dynamic and flexible enough that it can work wherever you happen to be. And there's very few sort of interventions or organisations that make those kinds of considerations. It's often very localised or so large as to be almost meaningless in what they're trying to attack. 
And so in that process of doing the work of getting an answer to solve these problems, the outcome was the Just Be Nice project. And so one of the things that fundamentally we had to start with was what does an equality of opportunity look like? What do we actually want? What are our aspirations for people? And for us, it was that people were housed, that they were employed and that they had good mental health outcomes. It doesn't mean you have to be full-time employed forever, but that you've got sort of meaningful, gainful, adequate employment. It's also in protecting the quality of work that matters in that sort of context. And in the work context, that includes education and opportunity and development all the way along. So that's sort of all picked up in that stream, I suppose. And the housing, again, it's that it's safe, it's that it's secure, it's long-term, that it's got the amenity that you need, that it's embedded in communities in which you feel you can be a part and contribute to as well, not simply a roof over your head, like there are conditions around that. And good mental health outcomes is, is ensuring that you do have those avenues to connection. It's ensuring that you're not waylaid by addiction or chronic mental health issues of any kind, that you've got friendship and you've got community around you and there's ways that you can move through the world without being isolated. It's not about being happy all the time because I don't think that's something that's possible or even probably desirable, but it's just making sure that people are being caught, that people are being supported and that you have the support around you to endure whatever sort of challenge comes your way. And it might surprise you to know there aren't organisations that are aiming at those outcomes and saying, Mm. we will take you from where you are to there, regardless of how long it takes and whatever we need to do. And we understand there'll be stumbles and you can bugger it up a few times and whatever, and we'll still be there. And we're not done until we're done. And if you fall off the wagon down the track, we'll pick you up again and we'll take you again. That actually doesn't exist. And I know that a lot of people sort of don't understand that because what I call impact literacy is quite poor. People actually have a very poor idea about what good impact looks like and how to deliver it. But organisations do not take responsibility for getting people to these complete outcomes. And that's one of the major reasons that people fall through the cracks despite engaging with all kinds of different incarnations of help everywhere. I imagine people are in those kind of elements. So where do they fit in and they fallen down and what's your experience in there? Those outcomes work everywhere. So I can have that aspiration whether you live in Tanzania, whether you live in Finland, whether you live in Chile, whether you live here in Australia. We can have these aspirations for every country. Of course, every country's government functions slightly differently. And so there are different challenges that are faced in different places all over the world. Here, one of our major federal challenges is that we have three-year terms. So interventions and long-term support become very difficult to get commitments for because they can't commit to 10, 15-year programs and things change quite a lot. In Singapore and stuff, where arguably they don't have a functioning democracy the way we do, but they are run like a corporation, they can make targets that are 20, 30, 40 years in front. And they can say, we're committed to doing this by 2050. And yeah, it's going to take 30 years, but we're in charge for 30 years. So that's going to happen. Here they say, we want to do this. Three years later, we've got a different government they've changed the priorities and we have challenges there. So the government is absolutely the largest mover in this space. They make up an inordinate amount of spending in social interventions, even amongst non-profit organisations, for instance. I think they make up about 70 to 80% of the spending in the space, regardless, even to non-profit organisations who would be doing the work. So hospitals and other organisations that are around doing stuff. What they don't do is they don't have an office of, say, equality of opportunity, They have separate ministers for housing, for health, for mental health, for education, and their programs are run independently of one another. 
Sometimes they bring together education, training and employment. Sometimes that's a portfolio, sometimes it's not. And not only do we have this at a federal level, but at a state level as well. So across every state, you've got one government managing everything in different portfolios, and then you've got a federal government managing it in different portfolios as well. And so coordinating it all, and as an individual or a community trying to navigate that system, the outcomes are not all aligned at any given point in time. We're not all committed in the same direction at the same time. It's very rare that that happens. So the challenge is that each independent part can do what they say they're going to do or pursue an outcome. But if you're not doing it sort of in tandem or coordinated together, then there's still lots of opportunities for people to fall through the cracks. On top of that, governments, like nonprofits, make decisions based heavily in the sentiment of regular people. And the sentiment that drives a lot of government choices is also weighted, again, heavily towards marginal seats, swing voters, and of course, very wealthy individuals and and wealthy companies. And dealing with challenges like generational disadvantage or things that are going to take 15, 20 years to sort out or supporting people that need that kind of support is something that I have a very tenuous relationship with because there's this sense of whether they deserve it or you've had enough help or that takes long enough or we can criminalise these people and then just sort of treat them like that, say, oh, well, they're making mistakes or they're criminals or they're useless and write them off. Oh, we're spending too much money on them. And so, Those conversations prevent long-term investment and move a lot of the investment towards people who are almost there, almost employed already, almost ready to finish their education. And you can put these people through and you can get numbers happening and you can deliver programs. But the people who are a long way off, they just are continually left behind because it's too hard. No one's paid enough. No one's got enough time or resources to pull them from where they are to where we want them to be. And so those guys end up continuously left behind. So people listening, how can they impact, in your opinion? What can they do to help these causes and make a difference in this space? One thing is to pursue being very good at something. I'm not about being sort of passion-led. I don't think that necessarily works when it comes to helping people. We're called the Just Be Nice Project because everyone can be a bit nicer. We can all leave an interaction or a person or, or a moment a little bit better than when we found it. And we can get it wrong and that's fine. It's, not, it's also not like you have to be a certain way all the time. It's a North Star. And so when you leave a room and you go, oh, fuck, I could have been nicer then. I'm guilty of it. I've got plenty of stories I could tell you when I wasn't that nice. But also being nice is about you getting an understanding of what that means for you. So, for instance, I swear and I've had people go, oh, it's not nice to swear. And I go, well, with all due respect, that's fine. You think that. And there's rooms in which I try not to swear. But also, I don't fundamentally believe that swearing makes me not a nice person. I think, you know, I'm doing nice things, whatever. So, with all due respect, I disagree. And that's fine. I'm allowed to disagree. You're also allowed to stand up to people who are behaving poorly or who are doing terrible things and say, that sucks. And that's not very nice. And you go, well, don't be terrible. It's not just acquiescing to everybody all the time, being a pushover. It's about understanding what that looks like for you. But as an end point for doing good, just being nice is woefully inadequate. Doing good is about what happens for the personal community you're trying to do good in. It's not about whether you made an attempt. It's not about whether you even care. It's about did that person or did those people get where they want to be, where they need to be? On top of that, doing something because you feel like you care about a thing doesn't mean you're good at it. Helping people is a skill and if you want to have a positive impact, the most impact you can have is on the other side of what you're really good at, period. 
just because you happened to know someone who you cared about a lot who then, say, got elbow fungus and it was chronic and then all of a sudden you went, oh, guys, I'm so passionate about elbow fungus because my uncle got it. That doesn't mean you're someone we should listen to about elbow fungus. You only learned about it a week ago yourself. You're only four days ahead of me in the journey of elbow fungus. And that's not a slide on anyone's intelligence or anything like that, but it's an area of expertise, you know? Just because I have lots of money and then go, well, I've got lots of money because I was selling something out of vending machines for a long time. And they go, well, I'm just going to decide my own financial planning. Your financial planning friend would be like, that's ridiculous. I've been financial planning for 20 years. What would you know about financial planning? You didn't make your money in financial planning. You made your money in vending machines. But everyone gets to this point. They go, I'm going to ask some charities some questions that I think are important. Well, you mostly taught the wrong things about charities and you taught the wrong things because of the way that we advertise and talk about charities. Your impact literacy is probably very poor and it's not your fault because there aren't great options. And people do say things like, oh, there's too many charities because charities are incentivized to either explicitly or implicitly say that they're better than another one. And of course, they all believe that. So and you said if they, people don't know, what are the like, couple of tips? Yeah, so the couple of tips is number one, Look after the people near you. That's number one. It is not easier to help a million people than it is to help one. If you're not a good friend, if you're not looking after the people that you're nearby, if you're yelling at neighbours about one thing and then going to a gala and donating or buying something, you still aren't a great person. And so don't come talk to me about what you think you should do. Stop asking people to come to you and pitch you about why they're the best because that's also a silly thing to do. Take someone who's very difficult to help and stay with them for as long as it takes to help them. And you'll realise after you've been working with your cousin who's been battling addiction and you've just been a support for them, not trying to take over, but just a support, you'll go, my goodness, this has taken five years. He's had to engage with three different rehabs, 20 different counsellors, four different people to do with the court proceedings he's been through, a couple of legal service guys. And that's a bunch of people you've had nothing to do with in your whole life, a bunch of systems and services you don't understand that this person certainly doesn't understand. And they keep making the same mistakes. When you get to the end of it, perhaps they get on their feet and you go, that took seven years before I even spent a cent of all this money I've been putting away. Like, Yeah, that's right. It takes seven years. That's how long it takes. And there are massive institutions that have wonderful pitches for things that also fundamentally should be being supported by other stuff. The Royal Children's Mm -hmm. Hospital Appeal is a great example. There is this belief in the space that there are sexier causes and charities than other ones. And it's true. It's a lot easier to raise money for sick kids than it is for, say, Alzheimer's. The Royal Children's Hospital, they have a massive appeal. They raise a lot of money. But hospitals are fundamentally supposed to be funded by the government. Frankston Hospital also looks after kids. So does Monash. Why this one particular hospital? Why this one particular fundraising day? Because it's a very successful marketing exercise that alleviates the response, the collective responsibility to support hospitals and healthcare more generally and everywhere by saying, oh, we're going to raise this money. Now, is that an effective place to spend that money? I mean, part of me goes, we shouldn't have to. That if the hospital needs another $17 million or whatever their fundraising target is for Good Friday, then they should have access to that $17 million because we should be all advocating for good systems of support from the federal and state governments who are about 50-50 on the contribution to hospitals. But we should also advocate for that same contribution in Sale and in Frankston and at Clayton's who also see children and see people who are sick. And also we should have that kind of support 
for various other challenges that people have that are also massive challenges with huge numbers of people that suffer from them, but are maybe less sexy or less easy to market. So people are driven into those avenues for contribution because they make sense. You can tell people you did it. You feel a connection to these things. But if you haven't looked after the people around you, then you will never have engaged with the complex nature of help. There are very, very few people who actually have the impact literacy to be able to help people make good decisions. When you're ready and you've got resources and you say, I'm ready, I want to do something, at JBN, that's how we're resourced. People come to us and say, we want to do good, we don't know how. And we say, don't tell us what you think you can do to help. Tell us what you do. Tell us what you're good at. And then we will be able to tell you, this is the best place for you to get the outcomes that you want that make sense for you, but also give us access to the best quality interventions for people. It's about making sure that you're participating in a system of help at the point where you're the most useful to have the most possible impact and give people access to the best possible interventions. Because there is a side effect to letting people make their own decisions. And part of that is that people who get help should just be happy with whatever help that they get. So we've got accountants who go and paint walls for people. They're not even painters. But what we're advocating for there is that you should just be happy that anyone painted your wall. Not, how do we find the best possible people to paint this wall the best possible way, which would have us with painters painting? Oh, no, no, we can do it because they're just poor people. They can just have that because they'll just be happy with whatever they get. Oh, these kids are hungry. We need to give them white bread sandwiches. My kids are going to eat a salad and sushi for lunch, but these kids, they're poor. They should be happy with white bread sandwiches. And our whole team, we're going to take everyone out and we're going to spend a day making food we never eat to give to people who are poor because they're poor. So they should just be happy with that. Your point though is really hitting home about so many things that I've done or so many things that, you know, been involved in over the years. It's always about what are you passionate about versus actually what are you really good at and you can make a far better impact through that. I think it's a really critical point. Yeah, the reason that people don't do that is because if I'm an organisation and I am that takes that position, it means I actually have to have a conversation with you to work out where that is and it takes time. So people are just going to say, can you walk 5Ks? Can you run a marathon? Grab a moustache, paint a toenail, come to this dinner. Can you paint a wall? Can you make a sandwich? Can you pack a box? And you're like, yeah, I'm literally, I'm a professional with 35 years of experience in my job. I'm pretty sure I can pack a box. It's just a program to get you to come and do something, not because it's the best thing you can do, not because we're getting the best outcome for the people who need help, but because I want to be able to blast the world with a request where I know everyone can do it, the easier it is, the less barrier to entry, the more people will get involved. The more people we get involved, the more people that will feel like they did something, then maybe we'll raise a bit more money. And the more people can be involved and talk about it or tell people about it, the more it will spread as well. If I tell you to come in and say, I'll do this, teach this person cello, then only other people who care about the cello or know what it is can care then no one else can do it because they all know they're 10 years away from being able to teach it. It all takes a lot of time and that added complexity means it makes our job much more difficult. But Mm. that's how the healthcare system works because we understand that you want experts to do the good work and they need an enormous amount of infrastructure and coordination, that there's an enormous amount of support services, that there are multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical and medical equipment industries built around it, that there are billions of dollars of university infrastructure built around teaching people, that the hospitals themselves are these enormous, massive, multi-billion dollar infrastructure pieces in place with huge support systems of allied health around them. Because we know if you want to get better, that's what you need. 
If we move over to the social help side, it doesn't look like that at all anywhere except at JBN because people go, oh, actually, for this guy, I'm going to give him a blanket and call it a day. We're going to go out to this place and I'm going to give them a resume writing course and then we're going to call it a day. And so instead of taking someone in the front door and saying, you're here, we've got you until you're better, like we do in a hospital, we take people in and we say, oh, you've walked into the place where we give you a cup of tea and a pat on the head. So you're going to get a cup of tea and a pat on the head regardless of what you're here for because that's what we do. And all we need is two people out of 10,000 to say that cup of tea and a pat on the head changed my life forever. We catch that on a video. We quickly blast it around. And then we tell everyone, oh, give us five bucks, change someone's life forever. And what that teaches people is there's a worse problem. You can tell by looking at someone. There's a best solution that it's quick and easy to contribute or be a part of that solution and then you'll change someone's life forever. And none of that is true. There is no worse problem. You cannot tell by looking at people. There is no single best intervention. Most people need a series of interventions coordinated at the right time, in the right order for as long as they need it to get better. Changing someone's life forever requires the trust around them in the support, the engagement in that support, the actual opportunity for them to finish the job. And it's incredibly difficult to change someone's life forever. It actually takes a lot of work. And if you audit the people and places that have changed people's lives, it's usually people who have earned the trust for a really long period before they even have the moment where they change someone's life. Or they have all the material stuff that makes a huge difference and someone goes, oh my God, they put me up in a house and they got me a job and they did this and then I got on my feet and you know they organised my debts and I was okay. It wasn't, oh, someone came out and told me, I believe in you and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, thanks, complete stranger who I don't know. You've changed my life forever. That's not usually how it works. And it's not to say that it never works like that. But that marketing campaign is just rinsed and repeated across every issue constantly mm. all the time. And that has damaged people's impact literacy massively because people expect, oh, I just need to do this quick one little thing and people only need this quick one little thing and that should sort them out. So Josh, were you always like this? I think so. Yes. It's funny because, you know, people say, oh, you're very passionate. I say, look, I am obviously. And I think being passionate is a good thing. I just don't think you should be passion first. I also happen to be excellent at this. You know, I happen to know what I'm talking about. And actually, that's a million times more important than being passionate about it when it comes to helping people. Because there's people on the end of it. It's not like I'm selling widgets where if I bugger a few up, I'm like, oops, sorry, your iPhone case cracked. I'll just send you a new one. It's like if you bugger it up with people, you're buggering up people. And I'd never have wanted to practice that on people like letting people down, you know, and doing that sort of thing. Because that's already one of the reasons why it's so hard to be a person or a community that's in need is this constant being let down. It's hard to reflect on when you were a kid and what you were like. So my best feedback is really from some old things that I've found as an adult, like letters and things from my father in particular, but also from cards and stuff. And I've got this letter from my old man where he says, I just wish that you could have some peace at some point. You're always out here trying to look after everybody. You're always worrying and paying attention and doing the things. I just hope one day you can have a breather, that you can relax about it and that you get a moment where you're peaceful about it all. Yeah, I guess I have always been like this. But because we grew up with so little, I've also been obsessed with the idea that you can only help insofar as you're good at stuff. And so I've taken that to mean whatever you're doing, whatever you've got your hands on, do it as well as you possibly can. You can't always guess how that's going to be the thing that is going to help you to help others. 
but you'll find out when you're good at it. And when you string together a set of skills or things you know or whatever, you'll find the ways to pull it together in ways that make sense and, and ways that are unique and effective and good and positive. It's a difficult job and things get very difficult, but I never have a crisis of purpose, which is inverse to some of the professionals that I know and that I've worked with, obviously, in my work where they're like, ah, you know, I'm making great money and I've got all the things and I just don't know what the point is. And I'm like, yeah, well, I have no money and we bounce along doing all that, but I never have a crisis of whether or not I'm doing what I should be doing. So I'm very grateful for that. And I think that it's partly something that was instilled in me from watching struggle as a young person and then being aware of people and what's going on in people's lives. But then a whole life of paying attention to that means that, you know, I'm quite advanced in my understanding, I suppose, of how that looks and, and then how to hopefully address, address those challenges. But of course, we're always learning as well and always finding new and wonderful, you know, ways to get better. Josh, what a beautiful way to bring our conversation to an end. It's so gorgeous to chat to you and I'll have all the information in the show notes where people can find you, that they can look more into the um, Just Be Nice project and hopefully offer services and be involved. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're always around, always up for a chat and I appreciate the time this morning very much as well. I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you. It's been great to chat. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.